Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives inclusive growth and opportunity for our local tech, innovation, and startup ecosystem. They recently announced the 2022 Chicago Venture Summit, Future of Food, their new flagship conference to highlight why Chicago leads as a global capital for food innovation. Follow World Business Chicago on LinkedIn and Twitter for event details and other related news about our city's economic progress. Jordan, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. It is a pleasure to have a soon-to-be Chicago resident on the show. Yes, I'm, I'm on my way. Matt, thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to join. It's always great to interview a fellow podcaster. Uh, I usually find that just makes for some podcasting magic right there when the two worlds collide. So uh, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get to talk a little bit more about uh, about your podcast. But to start, I- I'd love if you could walk listeners through kind of your professional background and how you got to uh, to rally eventually. Sure. Uh, so for me, it goes back to growing up in a pretty classic immigrant entrepreneur household. So my parents brought us over from Israel when I was six, and I watched my father as an entrepreneur. And then once you kind of lodge that in your head, uh, it's tough to get away. I I made the mistake of trying investment banking uh, after college. Should have (laughs) known that was not right for me. Uh, Ran away screaming after a year and then started my entrepreneurial journey through different businesses, ran some businesses with my brothers, with my uh, uh, father also, and eventually got into the web. And started uh, an e-commerce company with my two brothers and then grew that and sold it. And then I wanted to get into the software side of e-commerce. And that's what led to Cardhook. And that's my previous company. And that's what led to Rally today. Yeah, and I think you clearly have... You know, extensive experience in the in the e-commerce space, and I think one thing that you all address um, on your blog at your website uh, is kind of the platform problem that currently mm-hmm. exists in commerce. And I think this probably leads directly into you know rally and the and the business origin you know origin story. But would love if you could start first though on on the platform problem in commerce, how you came across it. You know, walk listeners through what it is. Sure. So, so right. I focus on the commerce side of things, but the truth is, this is happening throughout the web. Um, these really big, successful, centralized platforms like Facebook, Twitter, uh, in my case, Shopify, and others, uh, just did an incredibly good job with customer experience and attracted a ton of users and a ton of compliments. Right businesses servicing those consumers. So that could be the advertisers on on Facebook or different apps. Uh, Twitter had its issues. Shopify built a platform that merchants can build their stores on and also app developers can sell into those merchants with apps. And the platform issue that we're talking about is happening all over the web where at some point the relationship of the platform and its complements those apps, uh, it goes from it goes toward a zero sum game, and it switches from very complementary uh, into competition. 
because the pie doesn't grow quite the same way uh, at the same rate and the platform is left with all the power. And then the platform inevitably ends up extracting value because of its position, it, ha it has the ability to do so. And so in e-commerce, the way that's happening is that these really large platforms, specifically in, in my experience, Shopify um, is starting to put the needs of its own business above the needs of its individual merchants and its individual app developers. And so that, that's my angle on it. And I'm happy to kind of go into more detail from there. Yeah. And I think, is there an analog here almost to the consumer world with, I'll just use social media as a very easy one, you know, a platform that built up, aggregated a ton of data. And as people have seen now very clearly through the social dilemma, through the 2016 election, um, the, con the company owns that data. It can do with you know, with that data, what it would like. And I think mm -hmm. people are starting to become very uncomfortable. And I think that kind of gets us into that, you know, web three conversation, I think we'll, yep. you know, we'll broach, but is that a, is that a helpful analog? Do you think for people to think about, uh, you know, the, the consumer versus the, you know, yeah. the, um, the e-commerce business or a SMB business? Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. Social media is the one that we're all like most familiar with because when they first started, the amount of value generated was, it was incredible. When Facebook's first started, the ability to be in touch with people in that way created an enormous amount of value for the users and for the platform and for the compliments and for everyone around the table. Uh, but as it grew, what we all learned was that we were actually the product. <laughs> we, we weren't paying, uh, but we were certainly helping the company generate enormous amount of revenue and in ways that we weren't really aware of uh, all the time. And so that's a perfect, uh, perfect way to look at it. It's like this, this S-curve that goes from cooperation to competition over time. And on the way up, there's a tremendous amount of value created for everyone. And at the top of the S-curve, as it starts to bend and the growth rate slows, the platform's really the one with the power in the ecosystem to extract. And at that point, the users, the compliments, the people building on the platform don't, don't have nearly as good of a time as they did earlier on. And are merchants really waking up to this idea? I mean, there's been this cultural kind of shift, it feels like, towards, you know, econ or towards social media companies where it feels like most people are in the know now about kind of what you're describing. Would you say the same is true for merchants? Um, are they starting to see kind of maybe some of the drawbacks of these Web2 platforms? Uh, yes. So I am no expert in social media platforms or these other things. So I, I'm, I'm comfortable talking about e-commerce because that's what I'm very, very familiar with. And the reason I'm very familiar with it is because we, my previous company, Cardhook, and my co-founders there and the people I worked with there, we found ourselves at the tip of the spear of, of these issues. We didn't mean to. We didn't intend to get into like a big fight with a giant $100 billion publicly traded company. That was not our intention. Our intention was the merchants are there. They have a need. Let's build software for them. They'll pay us. We'll generate value for them. It's very kind of like naive in, in some ways. And the product that we heard the market talk about and listened to merchants identify as what they wanted, we built that product. That was a, an alternative checkout system that provided merchants with more flexibility over their payment processing and marketing features around the checkout process. So that's what we built. And we built it in such a way that it would work with Shopify, that, that it would allow them to do the payment processing, right? Because our intention was not to take money away from the platform because that's short-lived. It's not going to last. 
And where it morphed into was a checkout product that did the payment processing on its own. And, and that, that put us into this crazy game of chicken with Shopify that we never intended to get into. And then we got into a very strange dilemma where we hit on product market fit. I mean, the thing grew like immediately as soon as we launched it. We did $100 million in processing the first year, $300 million the second year, $600 million, and then over a billion. So we did like $2.75 billion in total. Never being allowed in the app store, not having the normal channels of distribution, and having absolutely no help, anti-help from the platform itself. But this is what the market wanted. They were screaming at us. So we got into this situation where we had like this fantasy business, 25 employees, 6 million ARR, super profitable, doubling every year. And then and then it ended. And then Shopify decided, okay, we, we don't want you to exist anymore. So, so you're out of here. So that that was our very real experience with with these issues and i'm glossing over an enormous amount of like angst frustration pain (laughs) emotion like all the stuff that goes with it yeah i mean could you talk about that process of i guess picking yourselves up and and moving you know moving on to rally and and you know what was that like i guess if we could because this is a story you know i think some founders are definitely going to resonate with that that hear this uh, you know, hear this episode. So we'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about that, you know, that, that transition. Yeah. There, there's a lot of these stories out there, right? People who built apps on Facebook back in the day, and then just it all went away or people that built on Twitter's API that got taken away, or there's, there's an endless number of cases. And if you ask around, a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you that this is part, it feels like part of life. And Maybe because we experienced such a severe version of it. If you if you build this company and you work extremely hard at it and it succeeds, it's almost like the more successful it became, the more stressful it was because then it was like more to lose. Yeah. So if you do that and you basically walk around with what feels like a guillotine over your head for years, you you, you go through the full emotion cycle. You get frustrated. You get mad. You get resigned to the fact. And then at some point, you start, you try to figure out, well, what can I do about this? And what can I do so that I don't experience this? And what can I do so that others don't experience it also? Because this is not healthy. It's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for the company. It's not healthy for like the ecosystem and the web overall. Um, So that experience directly links to what we're doing now at Rally. So Rally is our answer to that problem. It's how does e-commerce look when there is no giant central platform controlling everything, telling people what they can and can't do? Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense. And I think from there, you know, I think maybe some listeners have heard of headless commerce and this idea mm-hmm. that I think is really caught steam in the last year or two or so. Um, would love for you to describe headless checkout and and now, you know, I guess digging in a little bit more into the product offering and, and what it's going to provide merchants, you know, who, who sign up. Right. right. Like what we're talking about now is the the lofty goals and the mission. Right. Right. But right. You got it. You got to get the product right. You got to make it compelling and it's got to provide ROI. Uh, so, so headless commerce, the word headless refers to the E-commerce platforms traditionally were built in a very monolithic way. You have the front end, the storefront that shoppers interact with. Then you have the transaction layer in the checkout. And then that leads into the back end with the e-commerce functionality like shipping, orders, discounts, products, and so on. And that monolithic version of a platform, the way Shopify, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, and others were built, 
made for a relatively rigid shopping experience because the front end, the storefront, was really just a visual representation of the product database. So all the product pages look the same, right? It's just taking images and name and price and pulling it from the database and showing it up on the web. And that was good for a long time because e-commerce stores really tried to mimic like a direct analog to the physical store, right? You walked in and that was the homepage. And then you go through the aisles and that's the category pages. And then you go to the, look at more information on the product and that's the product page. And then you literally put it into a shopping cart and you go on the checkout line. It's like very analogous. right? But now, especially with the pressure that COVID brought onto e-commerce, now it's much easier and cheaper to launch a brand online. You don't need an enormous amount of resources, which means the competition's gone through the roof. And what that has led to is that a lot of the competition is on the shopping experience. That's how you make a name for you. That's how you establish a brand that feels different, right? If you go to Allbirds, their website feels very different from, you know, a, a, a starting out entrepreneur. And so with that focus on the front end experience, the technology these days is great for front end experiences, but the way the platforms and e-commerce were built is not great. So headless refers to taking the head off, taking the front end and separating it from the back end. And that, what that does is it allows the technology and the front end to flourish and the, and the shopping experience to become more unique. So headless commerce refers to the separation of the front end and the back end in e-commerce so that brands can be much more creative and a lot less limited on the front end, while the back end API functionality and the third party apps can accomplish what needs to happen in order for an, an e-commerce brand to to operate. And so when people are trying to visualize this, is this a scenario where there is still a place for, you know, those great technology platforms out there like the Shopify, like the BigCommerce mm -hmm. to help with that front end, but solutions like yours theoretically in the long run, they could almost coexist. Is that kind of the the long-term, I guess, strategy? Yes, I don't think the platforms are going anywhere. But but what's happening is there's a lot of pressure from merchants. So the, the best brands on Shopify are the ones that are pushing and saying, hey, I want more flexibility. I don't care what liquid language, whatever you came up with. I want my engineering team to just be able to do whatever they want. And so right now, what people see headless, headless is really just the front end. It's, oh, you want more creativity on the front end. So it's going headless. We think that is just the beginning of it. So if you look at the like investment community, which generally speaking is forward looking, right? What's going to happen in the future? Let's start funding these things. What's happening is the investment's not just going to these front end solutions like Builder.io and Shogun and View Storefront and so on. It's also now going to API driven backends, like Swell, Sailor, Commerce Layer, Commerce Tools, Cord, Fabric. I could keep going. We think in that future, what needs to exist is a unifying checkout layer that connects the front end and the back end. That's what Rally is. Rally is intended to be an extremely flexible checkout layer that is agnostic. You do whatever you want on the front end, you do whatever you want on the back end. We will add a ton of value and features at the payment layer that e-commerce merchants want. And that's kind of what gives us the right to transact, to, to own that payment experience for brands.
And as you're growing, as you're looking to acquire more merchants, I, I, I'm so fascinated about how they're finding you today, like what your go-to-market strategy has looked like. And and I guess off of that, any size merchants are you targeting right now? Is there kind of an ideal size or if it's because it's e-commerce, I mean, they're, if they're online, they're online. So they could theoretically, you know, use, use your, your technology. So yeah, I know that's a big lot of questions in yeah. one. So let's start with, I guess, how they're finding you kind of that go-to-market strategy. We, we are in that typical stage where early there's word of mouth, people that know us from the Cardiac experience, um, people that might know me from the podcast, and we're just starting that. So we built the product in 2021. We raised the seed round <clears throat> of $6 million last year and built the product and then started going to market in Q1 of this year. And so we what we do is we partner. So we have an integration and a partnership with Big Commerce. We have an integration with Swell, and we have an integration with WooCommerce. And so those backend platforms allow us to operate for merchants that are using those platforms. So what a big commerce merchant can do is come in and effectively swap their checkout. Instead of using the default checkout provided to them by, by big commerce, they can use the rally checkout instead. That's like yeah. the, the simplest way to explain how it works. Yeah, and then no. what we need to do is add a feature set that's extremely compelling. Otherwise, what, why would they switch? Right, right. No, yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Have you seen other, because I feel like you're, you're playing into a, a really topical kind of groundswell right now of moving from web two to web three and the idea of decentralization. And you guys even, you know, you talk about on your website, on your blog, you know, referencing Chris Dixon and all these sort of, you know, his sort of ideologies around this that I think are obviously very top of mind for people. So do you feel like you know this product at this time is almost a golden opportunity in the sense that it's not just in e-commerce, investors in general are looking for tools that are trying to decentralize, that are trying to play directly into kind of that Web3 playbook? Yes, I think this is the biggest opportunity I've ever come across. And, and what we're doing with Web3 and with the token is effectively the most ambitious version of what we're trying to do. Right. So we talked about these platform issues with Shopify at our previous company. We talked about the product at Rally and what it does, right? It provides a better converting checkout. It has a network attached to it, meaning when a shopper goes through our checkout once, they're saved into our vault. And whenever they come back to any other Rally checkout in the network, they're recognizing can buy with one click. It's kind of like ShopPay, but instead of being for one platform, it's for all platforms. And instead of being for one processor in Shopify payments, it's across all processors. So it's more open in that way. And then we have something called post-purchase offers that adds new revenue. So th the product itself has to be compelling on its own. But if we then look into the future a little bit, if we do everything traditionally, even if we succeed, we'll just end up something like Shopify anyway. We'll just end up, okay, now we're the bully and now we tell people what to do and we don't have an entire platform. We're building just the checkout piece. So we don't even really have the power to bully, which does, doesn't sound like that interesting to me. It sounds like we can be successful in the short term. So what we're doing well, when it comes to connecting that web two and, and, and web three approaches is we are launching our own token and merchants that use our checkout earn tokens, meaning they earn ownership in the rally network based on how much revenue they process through the checkout. So it's almost like if you were a merchant that got into Shopify early and your payments and your contributions earned you ownership in their company. But for us, it's a network. And we can operate in this way um, 
because the dynamics around tokens are very different. We can operate it almost like a public good, right? The, the tragedy of the commons, right? Common kind of issue, like people take care of what they own in, for their own self-interest, right? That's, it's like human nature. It's understandable. Tokens kind of uh, challenge that because we can operate a network for merchants that, that's owned and controlled by the merchants, but we can have an enormous financial interest in it because we own a bunch of the tokens too, right? So that's what we're trying to set up, a, a, a situation where the merchants are fully in control. They're the ones that control the network and the checkout and a lot around what happens in the future of the project. And we are still extremely interested from a financial point of view because we're along for the ride. We own the tokens also. And so it could be a simplistic question here, but for future investors who want to provide, you know, venture capital, all right, will you be selling tokens in the network or you'd be doing it traditionally? How is that sort of come into play at all yet? Yeah, it's that's it's like a strategic question, right? Because when we raised our seed round, we raised it on a safe. And now as we start to look into our future where we push a lot of the value toward the token and not toward the equity, it starts to it's, it starts to change. And so the state of the legal art at this point these days is you do safes with warrants for future tokens, right? Because you don't want to you don't want to sell tokens until they have utility. Otherwise, you get into security land. Right. So what people are doing now, projects in early stages like this, is they're raising money from VC on a safe, and they add a warrant for future tokens to it. And sometimes the safe comes into play in meaning it converts to equity. And sometimes it just never converts because all the, the value is focused on the um, token. But from the venture, from the investor point of view, and also from the company point of view, you kind of have both bases covered that way, right? So if the company goes off and gets acquired, then you're not left out just because you only bought tokens. So it's kind of like a, it's a fair way to do it and cover both bases, and then once you launch a token, really what you're trying to do is establish a price, establish a value, and then that starts to give you a lot more options as a project than you would normally have as an early stage company. I can get I into think that. That's, that's so fascinating. I just to, to so like in the future, because if a uh, theoretically, if you're doing it by the safes, what will be kind of that triggering moment in the future when, you know, the warrants will convert because of the, you know, no price round, I assume. So like what will mm -hmm. be the kind of future catalyst for that, you know, that the, transition yeah, conversion. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you need a qualified financing, right? In a right. price round or you right. need an exit of some type. Right. Um, but if neither of those happen because you turn into a crypto project and there is no price round and it right. never converts, it's kind of like this strange thing, but doing the safe, with the warrants covers both bases for the company and for it's kind of fair for everyone because it's it's difficult to tell today what five years from now looks like sure sure yeah yeah no i think that makes a ton of sense that's so interesting i have seen now multiple more and more companies kind of using tokenomics essentially behind their kind of financing structure i think it makes tons of sense i i think it's going to transform the way young software companies build themselves yeah I, I tell my peers, right, my friends who are software founders, I'm like, yeah. guys, <laughs> you, you, you can ignore it all you want. But when your competitor comes on the scene and starts effectively giving ownership in their company to their customers and you're not mm -hmm. doing that, you're going to have to rethink some things.
Yeah, and that's that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it is a kind of a competitive strategy thing at this point, and I think you know you're you're spot on. I think also um, transitioning here a little bit uh, because you're talking about you know your friends in the industry. I, I'd love if we could talk a bit about uh, your podcast and uh, you know give li- listeners a little little taste of what you discuss on each episode and you know the genesis behind it. Sure. The the podcast is is a lot of fun. I, so I run a podcast with a very good friend of mine. His name's Brian Castle. And the podcast is called Bootstrapped Web. So you can tell from the name, I started this like, I don't even know, seven years ago or so. And I I, I came out of the um, microconf community. I don't know if you're familiar with microconf. Uh, it's run by uh, Rob Walling uh, and, and, and Mike as well. And they they really pushed for an alternative narrative. They tried to go against like it's not that they went against. They just offered an alternative to the you must take VC and you must grow as fast as possible. And that really drew me. And I think I came from the family business background and I was like, I'm into that, not the hype thing that was happening. And so we started this podcast together and we basically it's like therapy. (laughs) I kind of ignore that anyone listens. So it's really he and I talking about what we learned this week. What's good? What's bad? What are you seeing out there? What's the market telling you? How are you trying to juggle features versus marketing versus where your focus is? So we just kind of get into it in a very, very straightforward way. It is like the anti-highlight podcast. Like we talk about what's hard, not what's amazing and all the fluff. I think um, there's oh sorry I mean I was just gonna say I think there's such a market for that honestly I mean it's it's so true there are yeah. there's a lot of VC startup podcasts out there and a lot of it is is all of the highlights right everything's amazing we just Every- raised so much money our investors are the best like that's not how, really how business is that's that's right. that's a press release which is which is fine there's nothing wrong with that but the good stuff the valuable stuff is I fired someone and I didn't do it the right way and here's Here's what I learned from that. And I feel horrible how that happened. I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do to make sure I don't that ever, doesn't happen because I will have to fire more people in the future. And I refused to not do it the right way. Like that's the stuff that people actually do day to day. Yeah, no, totally. I think that makes so much sense. Um, we'll definitely link to the show notes so people can take a look. I would imagine anybody who's kind of looking to pursue the entrepreneurial route, um, bootstrapped or not, it's it's there's probably so many valuable learnings in there. I mean, seven years. You guys are you guys are OG podcasters Yo, at this point. Yeah, You're no, the first no generation of podcasters. I don't go back and listen, but I, I'm I'm happy that it's there. Uh, and even that, you know. What you what you can say in public is still you, you try to mask certain things. You don't want to invade privacy. You don't want to talk to individual right. team members, things like that. Right. So it's just a synthesis. It's very helpful, actually, to just be forced to look back at the previous week and look at the highlights and lowlights um, and, ju- and then just be a little accountable to, well, I said I, I said this is coming up and we're going to do it. So now I have to. Yeah, it's that idea of putting out kind of your goal or your to-do list in public and telling a bunch of people about it. Yeah, I think it's actually a very motivating uh, tool is telling as many people as you can that you're going to do something. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it depends on who you are, but that I'm motivated by like performing and like being held accountable through that like peer pressure thing. Well, we should probably touch on uh, some big news uh, for you, for the company. Uh, you are uh, in the in the process of moving to Chicago, which is yes. how this uh, podcast came about. That's right. That's right. I, I, I think I tweeted like, moving to Chicago, who should I meet or something like that, or just that just that we were excited to make the decision. And, and that's how we got in touch. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm from, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm from Israel originally, grew up in New York, 
and have been living in Portland with my family, my wife and our three daughters uh, for seven years. And we're ready for a change. And so we kind of searched around. We have that very strange curse of being able to move anywhere because the company's remote. And that is impossible because nowhere is totally perfect. Right. Um, and so we kind of narrowed it down to a few different places and then settled on Chicago and really excited about it. So it, it's happening in June, the move. And so we're in the process of like selling this house and looking for this thing and trying to get the mortgage thing, which is no fun for entrepreneurs. And yeah, but, but very excited to, to head that way. Have you done any kind of research into, you know, as a you know burgeoning, I guess, Web3 focused startup? Um, have you seen anything yet about kind of the community and as it pertains to Web3, as it pertains to crypto, blockchain, et cetera? Yeah, we so we do we do a lot with credit card issuers and payment processors. And there's a bunch of that in Chicago, like Discover and a bunch of others. Um, and on the crypto side, there's an extremely successful trading company called Jump Trading. So Jump Crypto has, you know, smashed it out of the park. So th that, you know, the way that happens is like one company is successful and then alumni leave and then start to start new companies. So that's starting there. And then FTX, uh, which is really big and has its roots in like that, like commodities trading, like uh, scene in Chicago. So, yeah, I, I think there there's the beginning of an ecosystem. It's not the Miami cool kid NFT art thing. It's not that, which, you know, I'm like 42 with three kids. So that's probably not my scene anyway. Um, but we're really excited for a mixture, for a, a bigger city. Um, the Midwestern values thing is very appealing. My wife and I met when we went to school at Michigan. Uh, we still go to Michigan every summer. And then we stop by our friend's uh, place in Evanston. They've now moved to Wilmette. Uh, so we've just been very familiar with the area for a really long time and see ourselves settling there for the long term. That's great. Yeah, there's there's probably not going to be uh, close to the you know Bitcoin conference that's going on in April in Miami. I don't think we're going to have anything like that soon not in like Chicago. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be the same vibe if we do. Yeah, but, look, uh... that's, that's good for a business trip or vacation, you know, but like for normal life, Chicago feels like an amazing mixture of a tier one big city. What we really like is that the city's accessible. The thing that drove us away from the New York suburbs is that they're really isolated. So if you want to go into the city, it's an ordeal. So the city's actually not very accessible. It's awesome because it's New York, but you can't just like pop into a museum because you feel like it with the kids. It's like a three hour ordeal. Yeah, I, uh, my, my brother and his wife go to the Shedd Aquarium every other Saturday. Uh, every other Saturday they go and they live in Northfield and it's like a 20 minute drive. I joined them two weeks ago and it, it was delightful. You know, yeah, it's a great cool. way to spend a Saturday morning. So there you go. Hot tip. <laughs> yeah, we like that. We like the proximity to the beach. We like the uh, great public schools. And I am so afraid of the winters. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I am. You did Michigan. I mean, you were there. Yeah, I, you're a I Michigan didn't like man. it. I mean, you... <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I always yeah. say when I complain about the cold. I went to you know, I, I went to Notre Dame, and South Bend is just as cold as Ann Arbor. And mm -hmm. So everyone says you grew up in the Midwest and you went to Notre Dame. There should be nothing. It's like it doesn't make you like it. It just makes you like have PTSD from all those times you walked yes. across campus in zero degrees. Yes. Look, it turns out that at this stage of life, weather is really nowhere near the top of the priority list.
So yeah, so it yeah. goes. Yeah, funny how that goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Jordan, I want to thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. This has been amazing. Uh, you guys are working on some incredibly, incredibly interesting and timely stuff. And uh, if people want to learn more about Rally, if they want to follow you, follow your story, where should they go? Yeah, normally I'm like, you know, hit me up on Twitter, you know. But in this type of podcast, I would love to hear from people who are in the Chicago area. Uh, so, yeah, the easiest way is go to rallyon.com uh, and my email, Jordan at uh, and then on Twitter, it's just at Jordan Gall. Uh, yeah, or they can reach out to you and get my info. Yeah. <laughs> happy, happy to do it. Happy to do it. Jordan, thank you so much. Take care. And we look forward to, you know, everything in store for Rally and having you on again the show very soon, hopefully in person in our studio in Chicago. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.